0: today. If you have any uh, experience or background in the medical field, or maybe you just suffered through the anatomy class in high school or college, human anatomy, which is really the the study of of all the parts of the human being, of how everything works together, all the systems and all of those kind of things. Well, I I came across something very interesting that John Calvin once said, and he said that the Psalms are an anatomy of all parts of of the soul the psalms are an, an anatomy of all parts of the soul what he meant by that was that in the psalms all of them all 150 psalms you see every aspect of who we are as image bearers in christ We see every emotion. We see every struggle. We see the highs and the lows. We see every aspect of who we are in this world displayed and sometimes confronted and sometimes encouraged in the Psalms. By this, he meant that all the Psalms search every thought and every desire that we would have and brings them to the surface under the microscope of God's revelation. That's what the Psalms do. There is a psalm for you on every day and every experience that you might have in this life. Are you down? There's psalms for you. Are you up? There are psalms for you. Do you is your heart moved to rejoice? Is your heart moved to lament? There are psalms for you. Uh, are you not even sure how to pray? Only just to cast your cares upon the Lord because you know He cares for you. There are psalms for you. Every aspect of who we are as beings created in the image of God is displayed in these psalms. And that is what he meant. There are all those seasons of life for us. I need to confess this morning that this is the first time I've gotten to preach in a while. Uh, So we're going to be a a few hours here, I think. Uh, But I need to get a few things out of my system because I began the summer... Uh, Not as I anticipated. Man makes his plans. The Lord directs his steps. And I found that out literally at the beginning of the summer. Um, Not doing anything athletic. Not playing football anymore or anything like that. But just walking through the parking lot of a grocery store. My feet went out from under me in a rainstorm. And I had two bags in both hands. And my feet go out from under me and I fall on my left side. And suddenly I'm feeling things that I've never felt before. All the air went out of my lungs. would learn very soon, in about an hour later or so, that I had broken about six ribs in six, or in six different places. My left lung was collapsed, which explained the breathing problem. And I was in immense pain. Pain like I had never experienced before. And I know all the ladies are rolling their eyes right now. So get over it. But as a dude, was in a lot of pain. And I spent a couple days in the hospital. And, you know, they tell you after the hospital and you go home, that's when the real pain begins because you're not on all the hospital stuff. And I remember that first night at home, after a few days in the hospital, sitting in a chair because I could not lay down and couldn't for a number of weeks in some of the most incredible, excruciating pain I've ever felt. And all I could do in those moments, in the middle of the night, my family is all upstairs off the bed dreaming sweet dreams, and here I am in a chair sleeping and trying to sleep upright. All I could do was cry out to God. All I could do was cast my cares upon Him. And that's exactly where the Lord wanted me. Man... Makes his plans. The Lord directs his steps. This psalm is about the Lord directing our steps. It is about the Lord, <coughs> excuse me, it's about the Lord directing our steps on a particular path. In this first psalm, excuse me, <coughs> this first psalm, think of it this way it's like a, a front porch to the all the other 149 psalms that will come after this. A front porch is not meant to be lived on, right? Though porches today have become quite extravagant, the front porch is an entryway into the home where people live and move and have their being. Psalm 1 is an introduction to all the other psalms. And we might even say it this way, Psalm 1 and 2 are an introduction to all the psalms. Because, and this is interesting, every theme, every significant subject that we encounter in all the psalms are at least quickly highlighted in Psalms 1 and 2. All of them. Everything that you could imagine that comes up in the rest of the Psalms. They're all here in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. But this first Psalm is like a a front porch. Everything that we find in this first Psalm is more fully expounded later on in the rest of the Psalter. Especially Psalm 119. And on this front porch, if we will continue with this imagery, are two doors. And we might liken these two doors to leading to two ways, or two paths, two roads. Psalm 1 stands as a fitting introduction to all that we encounter in these psalms. And here we have these two ways in Psalm 1. And here's what's interesting. Both of these two ways, these two paths, lead to the throne of God. Both of them do. But one... Will be turned away. Every man, every woman, every child must consider which path, which road they are on. And here in Psalm 1 are these two paths. One, we will see very quickly, leads to blessing and continued blessing, not only in the sweet by and by, but in the here, now, and now. And the other road leads to judgment. One is the way of righteous, one is the way of the wicked. In fact, this psalm may cause us to reconsider uh, an an age-old question that comes up in philosophy classes and those kind of things. How many roads lead to God? Well, our quick answer is, and we often say, well, only one road leads to God. And and that is, of course, essentially correct. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. There is no other way but by Christ. But there's another way to answer that question, how many roads lead to God. And I would say that there are two roads That lead to God. Now hear me out. That may surprise you a little bit. But let me explain. There's there's one road that leads to the throne of God. In which God will say. Enter into the place which I have prepared for you. Who are in Christ. Jesus calls this road the narrow road. There's another road. However. This road will also lead. To a throne. Or to the throne of God. But He will not say, enter in. Jesus says in Matthew 7.23, Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from Me. This is, there is a personal confrontation on this road in which Jesus is confronting those who have rejected Him. And He will declare, I never knew you. Depart from Me, you who practice lawlessness. He calls this the wide road that leads To destruction. Well, Psalm 1, if we may have this imagery in our minds, is the contrasting of these two roads. It's it's a vision for God. It's an understanding of who God is. One paved with righteousness and one paved with obstinate rejection. One is filled with blessing. One is filled with destruction. An Endless destruction. This psalm has an outline that's quite easy to, to follow. It, it just outlines kind of naturally. We preachers like it when a passage does that for us. But there's just really two main sections here. In verses one through three, if you look at your text, verses one through three, we see the, the character of the godly. This is the first contrast. He, he highlights the character of those who name the name of the Lord, who are followers of His, who belong to Him. And in verses four through six, we see the character of the ungodly. That's the two main sections of Psalm one. Psalm one is the front porch with two doors. Door number one is verses one through three. Door number two is verses four through six. And that's what I want to look at this morning with our remaining time. I want to look And examine a little bit these two paths that are set here in contrast to one another. The first is the character of the godly. Uh, God's people are characterized by godliness. Not perfection, but progression. Progressing in holiness. Progressing in godliness. Progressing in Christ-likeness because of the work of God's grace that is done in them and for them, not by their works, but by the finished work of Christ. This is the character of the godly here in verses 1-3. through The way that is described here in these three verses is the fruitful way. It is the way of righteousness. The way of blessing. The way of divine contentment. The way of fortitude and strength. The way of delight. The way in which our loving Father desires for you to walk with Him as His child. Notice there's a few character traits of this godly person. And they're sometimes couched in the negative and sometimes in the positive. And, and the first thing we see here in verse 1 is that there are fruitful pursuits. Fruitful pursuits. These, these are the, the pursuits of the godly. In verse 1, we see three parallel units in which the expressions that are used here become more intense with each one that is given in fact, this is a, a view of the godly from what he should not be. We do this in parenting, don't we? Now, what is the, what is the wrong path? Little girl, little boy. What, what does that look like? And we, we have them draw that out in their minds and with their imaginations to think on these things. And that's what the psalmist is doing here. He's saying to us as children of God, hey, this is the wrong path. Think about this carefully. Many times it's easier to define what something is by first saying what it is not. And that's what the psalmist does here. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or the ungodly, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. There's a progression there, isn't there? Or we might say a digression. It begins with walking, and the walking slows down, and it's standing. then eventually he's sitting down and he's sitting in a place of destruction. With each phrase, the influence of the world becomes greater and more intense. First, you will notice, however, that he says that this man, this child of God, is blessed if he doesn't do this. The word blessed. Notice that. Note that, please. Or, as my childhood pastor would say, the blessed. What's the blessed. The word blessed basically means happy or fortunate. Now, we Christians throw that word around, I think sometimes a little too cavalierly. We say, oh, you are just you are blessed. What we mean by that is he has a nicer house than I do. Or you're really blessed because they have something that I want. And we just throw that word out. Or, you know, something good goes on in our life. We say, oh, what a blessing. And all those things can be true. There's a place for those kind of things. But it's not just happy and fortunate. It's more than this. In fact, the way this word is used both in the Old Testament and in the New, it's, it's really irrespective of circumstances. It's irrespective of feelings. I can tell you on great authority that as I sat there in that chair that evening, I did not feel blessed. This blessing that is described here, biblical blessedness, is it comes from obedience to the way of righteousness, which includes, here in verse 1, avoiding the path of destruction. You will be blessed if you don't go this way. This is the fruitful disposition of the believer. In fact, as I said, all, all the themes of this psalm are, are expounded later on in another psalm, Psalm 128. You don't need to turn there, but Psalm 128 is a wonderful exposition of this word blessed. Psalm 128. How blessed is everyone who fears Yahweh, fears the Lord, who walks in His way. You see the imagery that is here in verse 1, also in Psalm 128. It's, it's fearing of the Lord that leads to walking with Him. When you shall eat of the fruit of your hands, you will be happy and it will be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children like olive plants around your table. Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. This is not blessing in circumstances. This is blessing because of worship. Because of walking with the Lord. Most famously, you probably know that Jesus used this word again and again throughout the Beatitudes as His introduction in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, verse 6, one example of that. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. There is a blessedness here in this life that will ultimately be paid out, so to speak, in the future. To be blessed is to enjoy God's favor, which comes by knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. Do you know Him? The Bible says that there's wonderful blessings in the Lord for those who do. One fruit, and it's a negative fruit here, it's a cautious fruit, the righteous man will avoid certain company and certain influences. This is not... Say this prayer and cut your hair and move to the top of the mountain and get away from the world kind of theology. That's not what he's saying here. We're going to see why that's the case here. But he is raising the caution flag to say, you need to think circumspectly about your life and about this world in which you live and walk. He says here that this person, does not, this believer, does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or the ungodly. This means, here's what this means, it doesn't mean that we avoid all relationships, all friendships, all neighbors, those kind of things. What it means is that we are not shaped by those philosophies and ideas that are antithetical to what God says is true. You can't avoid the world. Paul even says something kind of humorous in 1 Corinthians. He says, I'm not saying to go out of the world or get completely removed from the world. For that to happen, you would have to go out of the world. Paul was the first one to think of a space program. You would have to get out of the world to avoid it. And you know what? As pastors know this, uh, people that go that route, unfortunately, what they find is that even as they withdraw as best as possible from the world and all of its sin, what they find is what Martin Luther said, that wherever you go, there you are. And I can get away from all the sinners and all the filth of this world, and yet I find when I'm locked away in my own closet, there's my heart staring me right in the face. What he's saying here is not avoiding those things, but not shaped by them. The righteous man has a worldview that is shaped and influenced by what God says in His Word. Psalm 119 is Exhibit A. May, we may be aware of the ideas of the world. We may have studied them at some point in our education. But notice what he says here in verse one. He does not walk in them. More specifically, he does not walk in their counsel." The scriptures are full of examples of men and women who have listened to foolish counsel. Who are the loudest voices and counselors? In your ears right now. We see this first in the garden in Genesis 3. We see it in 1 Kings chapter 12 where King Rehoboam listened to the foolish counselors around him and brought judgment on himself and the people. I love the picture of Solomon teaching his son to avoid foolish counsel in Proverbs 1. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are graceful wreaths to your head and ornaments about your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, we'll lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol, even whole as those who go down to the pit. We'll find all kinds of precious wealth. We'll fill our houses with spoil. Throw in your lot with us. We'll all have one purse. Solomon says, for their feet run to evil and they hasten to shed blood. Where do you think Solomon heard that as he's counseling his son? Quite possibly his father wrote Psalm 1 in all likelihood. Who are your counselors? If any counsel we receive contradicts or opposes the word of God, it is the counsel of the wicked. Psalm 119, verse 24, Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Word of God counsels my soul. Why? Because it's some old book? Yes. But more importantly, it is an old book that has been spoken by the very breath of God. Why would I want to listen to anything else that would contradict that? Next, the righteous man avoids the path of sinners. This means he does not practice what they practice. His actions are different. There is a different quality about his life. The path of sinners is a, a road of hardship and destruction. A, a proverb that gets repeated almost daily in my household. Proverbs 13, verse 15. The way of the transgressor is hard. And that's how we say it in our house. Hard. Hard. Just to underscore the emphasis of it. Yes. We see this too illustrated in Israel's disobedience. Hosea confronts this. Hosea 10, verse 13. You have plowed wickedness. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you trusted in your way. Well, of course, that's... Foolish Israel. We can all see that now with the the value of hindsight. We look back on that and say, you're right, Hosea. Get after them. And yet, the Bible says this is the experience of us all. Isaiah 53, verse 6. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us, each one of us, has turned to his or her own Way. Don't walk with the wicked. Listen to what Proverbs says. Proverbs 2, verse 20. So you will walk in the way of good men and keep to the paths of the righteous. Proverbs 4, verse 14. Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not proceed in the way of, way of evil men. Avoid it. Do not pass by it. Turn away from it. Pass on. Proverbs 4, verse 24, Put away from you a deceitful mouth and put devious speech far from you. Let your eyes look directly ahead. Let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right nor to the left. Turn your foot from evil. Next, the righteous believer avoids the seat of scoffers. We went from walking to standing and now he's sitting and he is told to be cautious here as well. And here, the seat of scoffers is to avoid the influential and close relationships with those who would, the Bible would call blasphemers and mockers or what we might even call today atheists and agnostics or, or just those who despise God and his word. They are not intimate friends of the righteous. Again, not to avoid them. They are not our intimate friends, but they are our mission field. In fact, we're not to avoid their company, but we're to make fruitful use of our time with them. For even our Lord Jesus Christ, wasn't He called a friend of sinners? Who are these scoffers? Uh, Calvin called them sinners without Restraint. These, are, these are sinners without the Spirit of God. We are saintly sinners. We still sin, but we have been uh, indwelt by the Spirit of God. Our, our hearts have been changed for Him. But these are those without restraint. The Scripture cr- clearly defines the character of these scoffers. Again, the Proverbs have so much to say about the scoffer here. Uh, Proverbs 13, verse 1, A scoffer is one who does not listen to the correction of his Father and is therefore arrogant. Scoffing does not, and, and, uh, one who does not get from point A to, you know, just hardened atheism overnight. It begins with arrogance. Proverbs 15, verse 12. A scoffer does not love the one who reproves him. He does not go to the wise. It's someone who's constantly following their own way. They don't listen to wisdom. Proverbs 21, verse 24 says this person is motivated by insolent pride. Psalm 119, verse 51 says that scoffers are persecutors of God's people. They may achieve great fame. They may achieve and receive the applause of men. They e- may even receive and enjoy a seat of privilege and prestige. But Proverbs 19, verse 29 says they will receive their judgment. Judgment's Proverbs 19, verse 29, Judgments are prepared for scoffers as blows for the back of fools. The righteous man. This is quite a negative picture here in verse 1. But the righteous man will avoid these philosophies, these practices, and these associations, and he will have a fruitful disposition. Now, if we stopped our study this morning with verse 1, we would have a really unbalanced picture of the righteous life. We would have only a negative portrait. And we, by the way, parents, we need to be careful here that we not do all of our parenting only from the basis of statements like verse 1. That we not only just talk about, here's all the things you don't need to get entangled with. Don't, don't, don't. Stop, stop, stop. Stop, stop. Now, I find myself saying that a lot. Don't touch that. I need to make sure that my correction and my love and my counsel is balanced. To this end, and the scripture is wonderfully balanced. Verse one is what he seeks to put off, but in a void, but verse two is what he seeks and pursues to put on. And here we have in verse two the fruitful focus of this life of the believer. But his delight, strong disjunctive thing going on here between verses one and two, strong turning uh, of, of the steering wheel. If it's David that's writing this, he's like, we're on the bumpy road of the side of the interstate, verse 1, and now we jerk it back over to verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in this law, he meditates day and night. Quite simply, the believer reads and relishes every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Do you value it? Do you cherish it? Do you love it? I understand it's hard. The Bible says it's hard. Peter read Paul's letters and said there are hard things in them. If That's Peter, how much more us. But it is the way of blessing. We must hear and relish every word Jesus says that proceeds from God's mouth. In verse 2, this person throws off the influences of the world and has made his meditation the Word of God. He says here in verse 2, it's his delight. The Word is used 24 times in the Psalms. Ten of those are just used in Psalm 119. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. What it really means to delight in the law of the Lord and the Word of God. But here he finds blessing, refreshment, help, correction, and resolve in the law of the Lord. And the word law here, don't get wrapped around the axle on this. The word law is Torah. And it's used twice there in verse 2 for emphasis. In a narrow sense, in the Old Testament, it refers to the legislations that were given to Israel. But in a more broader sense, it refers to, quite simply, the revealed will of God. The Word of God. All that God says. In fact, all parts of the Old Testament at one time or another are referred to as the law or the law of God. It was law because it came from God's mouth. Just like mom says sometimes, this is the law of our home. This is the law of the land for the righteous. It is every word that proceeds from God's mouth. It is the teaching. Maybe that's another way to, to read that word Torah. It is the, the teaching. Every teaching that comes from the pen of God through the men that He inspired to write His Word. And with this understanding, you, you see this here in verse 2. <clears throat> the law is not a burden. What does He say it? call it here in verse 2? He calls it a delight. It's a delight. I have a nine-year-old little girl. She's our best eater. Parents, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, She doesn't turn away anything. I think that's because by the time you get to number four or five or whatever the last child is, uh, they're just happy to be there and just happy and glad to get food. And, and And you know what? It would not have made sense to her if I would have tried to to take a really fine piece of dry-aged steak grilled to perfection on Lamy's grill and try to feed that to her at the age of two. She would not have been able to chew it up. She would not have been able to taste it well. She would not have appreciated the nuances and the flavor and the perfect marbling that goes into that piece of meat. But she does now. And it cost us a lot more. But as she ate more and more, she ate from the table of her father her mother. Her appreciation for food and her palate has deepened and increased. And that's what we see in the Word of God too. That as you feast at your father's table, your appreciation and love for His Word will deepen and increase. Spurgeon has an insightful comment here. He says, talking about this person here in verse 2, he's not... Under the law as a curse and condemnation, but he's in it. And he delights to be in it as his rule of life. He delights, moreover, to meditate in it, to read it by day and think upon it by night. He takes a text and carries it with him all the day long. And in the night watches when sleep, when sleep forsakes his eyelids. He museth upon the Word of God. In the day of his prosperity, he sings psalms out of the Word of God. And in the night of his affliction, he comforts himself with the promises of the same book. The law of the Lord is the daily bread for the true believer. In David's day, how small was the volume of inspiration? For they had scarcely anything save the first five books of Moses. How much more then should we... The whole written word which it is our privilege to have in all of our houses. And I would only add to that to have multiple copies in our houses and on our phones and at our fingertips. The second half of verse 2 says, And in his law he meditates day and night. It's wonderful to be a reader. I don't think we're going to get through all the psalms this morning. Um But it's wonderful to be a reader of the Word of God, isn't it? But, it's not enough. It's not enough. One who reads it must meditate on it. Word of caution. Judas, no doubt, was a reader of the Word of God. The Pharisees, Read the Word of God. Scoffers and blasphemers read the Word of God. Cultists read the Word of God. In fact, one of Jesus' most famous retorts that he used over and over again as he was debating and confronting the enemies of Israel, who were supposedly the religious leaders of Israel, he would say things along these lines Have you not read? Implying that in all your reading of Moses, you have missed what has been not hiding in plain sight. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, Jesus said. The issue is not reading, the issue is believing. Believing what they read. I mean, we could only add to that list and go all the way to the nth degree. Matthew 4 and Luke 4, Satan reads, maligns, and twists, nonetheless reads the Word of God and quotes it. The righteous man, he says here in verse 2, meditates on it. He must consider it thoughtfully, consider it carefully, seek to apply it. The word meditate here, that's a word that gets a bad rap, and for many reasons in our day. We think of meditation as Turning off the mind, tuning out, just you know, just letting everything go. Empty your mind is what we often associate with meditation. It's actually a, an odd little word in the Hebrew. It literally means to murmur. It's to have something on the lips constantly. The idea behind meditation is that the Word of God is never far from our thoughts and lips. Meditation does not mean that we disengage our minds. It does not mean that we fall into a trance. Meditation is really deep and thoughtful, consistent and continued consideration of what we have read and what we have heard. By taking in the Word of God and meditating on it, its truths, our outlook on all things becomes fruitful. Because then we see God and His creation and the need of mankind for in the way that God wants us to see it. It's a way of seeing the world from God's perspective. It's a way of seeing your family from God's perspective. It's a way of seeing all relationships in the body of Christ and in this world from God's perspective. It changes your perspective. Spurgeon, again, he says, perhaps some of you can claim a sort of negative purity. Because you do not walk in the way of the ungodly. And and we we, we throw out our shoulders by patting ourselves on the back So, so much in that. I don't walk in the way of the ungodly. That's what Spurgeon says. Perhaps some of you can claim that sort of negative purity. But let me ask you, he goes on, is your delight in the law of the Lord? You see, there's what is often missing. Let's look at one more. Verse 3. Fruitful strength. Fruitful strength. Here's the payoff, so to speak. Here's the the fruit that exudes from this kind of life. The the life of the negative avoidance in verse 1, but also the fruitful pursuits in verse 2. And here is what we see. As a result, verse 3, He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, yielding its fruit in its season, its leaf does not wither, and in whatever He does, He prospers. The righteous will prosper because they have been strengthened and fortified by the Lord. The psalmist uses a, a simile here to illustrate how the righteous will be unwavering. Note, notice that this is not a wild tree. There's two kinds of trees that grow in my yard. On My back acre, I, I send out Junior, almost 16 years old this week. Pray for me, by the way. I send him out and say, you see that one that has popped up while we were away on vacation? Pull that out. That's not ours. We didn't plant that. Yank that thing out and and that because that will turn into a mess. That that is that is not a tree that has been planted by the master of the house. Then there's other kinds. There's beautiful trees, there's cedar trees, there's blueberry bushes that get big trees turn into trees. My garden. And there's even things in my garden that I did not plant there. They get pulled out. Verse 3 says, it is a tree that is planted. The verb here, planted, is it's. you don't need to go down the rabbit hole with this, but it's it's passive. Here's what you need to know about that. That means that this tree has been planted by a cultivator. It's been carefully cared for by a master, by the master gardener, the master creator. Now here's why this is significant. This means that this tree didn't plant itself. This tree owes its existence to the undeserved grace of God, the planter, the master planter, the Lord. Now the psalmist could have said something like this. With some help from God, this tree met God halfway and planted itself. That is, the tree and God met halfway and the tree took it from there. God started it all, but the tree finished it. That's not what he says. The psalmist could have went much further than that. He could have said, by the tree's own free will, he sprung up from the ground without any help from above. End of story. He could have also said, through a self-caused reaction within the self-contained germination of a seed within a cone, this tree came into existence over time through a process of evolution. But you see, not all those options can be equally true. The psalmist says, he will be like a tree planted. The supreme agent in this action is God alone. Why is that such a big deal? Because when you are suffering and it seems like everything is unraveling in your life, he will hold me fast. Right? You did sing that this morning. The righteous are given life by the free grace of God alone plus nothing. Listen to what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, But by His doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. John 1, verse 12, But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, not even to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So what does this mean for our understanding of Psalm 1, verse 3? It means that if we belong to God by His grace, we will persevere. We will be strengthened in the strength which He supplies because we will be planted, He says here. And as a result, and we'll finish up here, He says we will be fruitful. It will yield its fruit in its season. Not even the smallest part, the leaf will wither away. Jeremiah, I think, has this in mind when he says in, Psalm, in Jeremiah 17, verse 8, For he will be like a tree planted by water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when heat comes and its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. And he says here at the end of verse 3, and then whatever he does, he prospers. <clears throat> the prosperity he mentions here is not outward prosperity. Why is that? Because you can be wealthy in this world and not biblically fruitful. You can be wealthy in this world and not biblically prosperous. I listened last night before bed. I was listening to the testimony of a a young man who's now a pastor in California. And this man is faithfully proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in his former life and job. He is the nephew of Benihin. And he spent his entire life proclaiming a prosperity gospel, which is not a gospel at all. And he said, and even gave testimony to verses like this. This here, what is described in verse 3, is a prosperity of the soul. And so that everything can be removed from you. Heaven forbid, but but should something as, as drastic as that happen, everything is removed from us, yet he will hold me fast, and there's an unshakable confidence in the resolve of our great God. That is not something that you arrive at overnight, which is why verse two is so important. You must meditate on the law day and night. Psalm ninety two. Next position of this verse as well. Psalm 92, verse 12. The righteous man will flourish like the palm tree. He will grow like the cedar in Lebanon. Planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will yield fruit in old age. They will be full of sap and very green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock. There is no unrighteousness in Him. Who are you? when the Lord removes everything that we cling to in this life. Eight years ago, I heard my wife ask that question. She was lying there suffering with stage 3C colon cancer. Our children at the time were 1, 3, 5, and 7. The doctors only just shook their head and said, we're going to try some things. When the Lord takes everything from you, who are you? What do you cling to? And who is upholding your life? Praise God for her continued health. And the Lord has continued to sustain her. She goes again Tuesday for a PET scan. And every time we go through those moments, every six months for the last eight years, we are reminded again very tangibly we had to hold all this loosely. All of it. That's the character of the godly. We might come to the second half of Psalm 1 tonight, or we might go to Psalm 119. You'll have to come to find out. Where do you stand with this God? Does He uphold your life? If He does not, cry out to Him in faith and repentance. He will hold you fast by the work, the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross and in his resurrection. Would you pray with me?